Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is your host, Bob Wintermute, welcoming you again to New Books in Military History. Each week, we select a new title and chat with the author about their work. This week, we're continuing our focus on the Second World War, as our guest author, Jörg Muth, chats about his recent book, Command Culture, Officer Education in the U.S. Army and the German Armed Forces, 1901-1940, and the consequences for World War II. Muth's book, which has recently been selected for the U.S. Army Chief of Staff's professional reading list, is a provocative analytical comparison of the respective cultures of officership in the U.S. Army and the German Armed Forces in the first half of the 20th century. In setting up his comparison, Muth pulls few punches in his critique of the flaws resident in both institutions. Yet while the American army does manage to overcome these flaws, Muth notes the Wehrmacht ultimately fell victim to its own hubris, an ossified culture inherent in its origins. He continues to offer valuable insights as to how these institutional problems and successes continue to shape the culture of officership in the U.S. Army today. I will especially recommend reading Muth's book in tandem with one of our earlier choices, Michael Matheny's Carrying the War to the Enemy, American Operational Art to 1945. I think that taken together, the two books present an interesting debate on the subject of American military culture in the Second World War. Jörg, good morning. Good morning. Everybody, today we're talking with Jörg Muth about his book, Command Culture. Officer Education in the U.S. Army and the German Armed Forces, 1901-1940, and the Consequences for World War II. A graduate of the University of Utah and an expert in German military history, Jörg currently lives in Marburg, Germany. Jörg, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and why you chose the project? Yeah, I did not have that straightforward academic career that uh, most people have. I come from a very poor family, so after 10 years of school with uh, living on pocket money, I was pretty much fed up with the whole thing and decided to, you know, learn a job, a profession first and get some money and uh, then turn around and uh, go to night school and uh, do my degree because I always, I always wanted to get my PhD in history. So even when I was a kid, you know, I read all the history books, uh, especially military history books. Uh, you know, the, the huge books with the big pictures on battles, on tanks and all that <laughs> stuff. So I fell in love with uh, military history very, very early. But I just decided to, you know, make money first and then go to the university. And I did not know then uh, what I know now. And that is that Germany is one of the most unfair countries in the world when it comes to social mobility. So it uh, did not turn out that easily as I as I wished, you know, just learning one profession and then going back to the university was pretty hard. So first, um, 
I um, uh, became an apprentice for uh, sales as for for a salesman um, in a, in a large company that sold um, computers and uh, office supplies and uh, printers and stuff like that. And it was the pioneer times of the computers. So it was a time when um, 10 megabyte hard drive had the size of a shoebox and cost $20,000. Yeah, that was really cool. So I had lots of fun at that time. And uh, I discovered that I had some some affinity to computers. I understood them and I liked them and they liked me back. At least um, as long um, until, no, until the, the, the curse of uh, Bill Gates came to Windows and then it became more difficult and you, you know, had to become more like a psychiatrist to computers than, you know, really, really uh, an, an expert. So um, I worked in the computer business because it was so much fun in the pioneer days, pioneer days of, the, of the computer business. I worked for several years because it was so much fun. Uh, then I traveled the world. I went to the United States, traveled through the United States for several several weeks and uh, did all the, the battle battlefield stuff, you know. Oh, yeah. Lookout Mountain, Chickamauga Battlefield, Chattanooga Battlefield, uh, going on to the, the, the museum carriers, you know, the museum battleships like uh, USS Alabama, Mobile Bay. Um, so that was a great time. And it fueled, of course, my, my love for uh, military history. So I went to night school and uh, got my degree. In Germany, you need the Abitur. So yes. you need uh, 13 years of school, which is lots of stuff. So I, while I worked in the computer business, I got my degree. And then I went to, uh, to the university. And I started out with um, peace and conflict studies. And then I changed universities. And I did um, history, sociology, and law which was all very, very helpful in my, my later career. Yeah. And um, in Germany, you cannot study military history uh, in, in, a, in a narrow past like that often is in the, uh, like in the United States. You have to do history like everybody else. So you have to do ancient times, medieval times, everything. Um, and if you, you have to know your stuff, and then you can you know, kind of specialize in military history. But it's not possible just to do the military history stuff. So... Um, in Germany, when you um, finished your master, which is a magisteratium, uh, and, and not an American master, you are an historian. You are not a graduate student. So when I came to the United States, I was demoted to, to being a graduate student. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I went to the United States because um, in Germany I had no... Uh, I guess you get it from my, from my uh, foreword from the book, that because I got no opportunities here. Military history is still very difficult in, in Germany, and especially if uh, your topic is the U.S. Army. Yeah. So uh, if you do military history in Germany, you have to do the Wehrmacht all over. You have to become uh, an expert in Second World War and Wehrmacht. That is uh, inevitable. And there's lots of very, very good research on the armed forces of the Third Reich in Germany right now. Oh, so very, very socially oriented as well. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, lots of stuff, and it has so far only a fraction of that has made it to uh, to the United States. So that is uh, a sad thing that, uh, you know, people who do not read German cannot participate. Yeah, but my love was the U.S. Army and not and not the Wehrmacht. So during all that time, and had, when I had to do the Wehrmacht, I studied all, all the time the U.S. Army. Well, uh, and, yeah. Well, I was going to say, well, that kind of ties into, you know, the book itself about being a comparative study. Um, rather than an exclusive look at either the American or the German armies. And from what you're telling me, you were led that way from the start of your, of your, your project. Absolutely. 
absolutely. I absolutely wanted to do a book on the U.S. Army because as a kid, I wanted. Uh, I, I I met the the U.S. soldiers here. My my village was a maneuver area for uh, two times a year. So I had hundreds and thousands of U.S. soldiers here. And I always made friends with them. And I always was fascinated with their equipment and all that stuff. So you read that from my, my afterward, you know. So uh, I wanted to make Dennis Showalter and Edward Kaufman. They suggest I write that afterward so people know I am not biased against the U.S. Army. Mm. And that was a very good suggestion. It was a very good suggestion because if you – criticize an organization some people take that personally so and they said you know yeah we know all that stuff is solid your, your research is solid but it you might you might want to write a few words about you know your personal relationship about the u.s with the u.s army and how you come to research all that stuff so and that's why i wrote that afterward and it was really i think it was really very good advice well it's good advice it's a very touching afterward and you know i think they're right too because for a person to an uninitiated person in, say, academic military history to read your book, they might come away thinking that you were grinding an axe against the American military tradition, which is absolutely not the case. I yeah. want our listeners to understand, you know, this is a very subtly written, but also very astute and, and really quite ingenious approach towards looking at the issues of officer culture between two different national stu- uh, case studies that are also closely intertwined. You know, the, the German Hiedis and the United States Army uh, mm. from even before the First World War, as you point out as well. Right. Uh, so sort of the beginning of the, of the book, I mean, command culture, what is it? Well, I define command culture in several ways. And, uh, one way is um, the way command is exerted that's the right word the way you use command so if an officer is standing on the front lines and commanding or if an officer rather understands um his position and you know being backwards in the staff area and you know kind of managing the whole thing you know managing ten thousands of soldiers that is one way i understand command culture and the other way is certainly that what part of an army is an officer so is he one part of the team, like uh, the U.S. Army rather understands being an officer, or is he the core energy unit of the whole army, like uh, the Germans understand it, being an officer? So there's several ways I understand command culture. So let me let me go back for just a moment Absolutely. because um, I I wanted to to completely answer the question how I you know. Uh, came to the idea of writing the book. The in- initial idea was to write um, Foreigners, Foes, Friends. And it was an, uh, a much larger book and that uh, dealt with um, the perception U.S. officers had of the German of their German counterparts. So what did they think about the Germans before the war, during the war, and after the war? And it was, there were dramatic changes in their opinion about the Germans. But that was so big that uh, some of my committee members told me, you know, take take a part out, you know, take a part of that whole idea, that huge project out, and uh, and use that for your PhD. Right. And that was very good advice. So I took out um, that chapter about officer education, and then I blew that up into the PhD and into the book. So I, I, I found out there's so much about officer education. There's so, so many things misunderstood. There's so much stuff not researched. There's, for example, not a single monograph on the Kriegsakademie. Right. So 
there, there's there's lots of you know white spots in in officer education uh, historiography. So that was very very good advice. So I took that out of my initially much larger project. So that's that's how command culture came into being. Well, it's an excellent choice. And again, for our listeners, I mean, it's really so revealing as well about the academic process. You know, where we come into a project, but often our vision is bigger than the capabilities to complete a single monograph. And, you know, we need then to edit ourselves. Well, especially when it's a, a PhD, you know. Oh, yeah, when it's a PhD dissertation, yeah, yeah. absolutely. That, that is very important because often PhDs are just, you know, uh, that is information that is um, gathered in, in years of pain. And then it, and you have to send it out for free, basically. You know, you, yeah. you're not getting anything. That I could was able to publish that book so fast, and that it is not available uh, at ProQuest. That was just uh, that was just plain luck and uh, negotiations. Well, I could comment on, on the luck you had with getting your book published, but I won't <laughs> compared with mine. <laughs> your, your, your book begins with a dual assessment of the state of affairs in, in both armies at the late mm. 19th and early 20th centuries. And one of the things that, that interested me from the start was the extent of the German influence on the U.S. Army prior to the First World War. Now, I think that this may come as a surprise to many of our listeners who consider that a period of transition um, from the Western frontier to preparation for modern war. How deep does that influence go in the army at that time? Well, that hooked me up too. When I found it out, you know, I've written a book about the army of Frederick the Great, about the desertion in the army of Frederick the Great before mm-hmm. before my PhD even. And that's why I have that knowledge of the connection between the, the Prussians and uh, the Americans. Mm-hmm. And I was already fascinated at that time that um, the, the colonials uh, or, or the the guys who wanted independence in the United States, that they had such a good uh, relationship to, to the Prussians, and there even was uh, a faction uh, of the Americans who wanted um, Frederick's brother as a king in the United States. Mm-hmm. Because first, you know, it's a great problem for all revolutionaries what to do with the king. So, but if you have a new king, it's not as problematic. So the, the French just killed their king. So that was one of their solutions, but a faction uh, of the Americans, they just thought, you know, why, why not just put in a better king than, than we have in, in Great Britain? So there were indeed negotiations between uh, the, the Americans and uh, the Prussians about, you know, just borrowing a Prussian king. But it never, of course, it never happened, never never uh, took place. But they had, they had these great connections between each other. It was a very, very um, amiable relationship. So uh, when they requested that uh, officers should be sent to uh, the United States, uh, not, not yet the United States, uh, Fritze, Frederick the Great, he was happy to oblige. and He sent officers, though he, he sent officers who he thought were not first rate. But he was mistaken because uh, Baron von Steuben, he was an outstanding officer and he was just exactly what uh, the Americans needed at that time. And his flexible mind helped to shape the U.S. Army at that time. Well, because yeah, if he had been that rigid, like, you know, people have that mind of uh, Russian officers being, uh, it would not have worked, not at all. But he had that flexible mind that he could, you know, take stuff from the Prussians and take stuff from the Americans and mold it into a unique uh, uh, disciplinary structure. 
And it, it was also very interesting for me to know that so many of uh, Frederick's military writings, which were supposed to be top secret, had uh, made their way uh, to the Americans and were even, you know, reprinted all the time. So one of my sources said that he found uh, the famous uh, instructions of Frederick Great for his generals uh, many, many times. Uh, with the with the um, offices of the of Washington's army, Americans understand, of course, the connection of von Steuben to the Continental Army and you know the great death that's owed there. I think where many Americans lose connection, though, is the idea of a continuing German influence through the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we of course, you know, we under- some of us understand about the role of Germans in the American Civil War, but we don't think about a direct connection between German officership and American officership. Right, right. So that was the the funny thing about um, American officers going to Europe all the time. They were going all the time, going to Europe and, you know, looking at those weird Europeans who were constantly, in the mind of the Americans, constantly waging war against each other and had some, you know, kind of bloodthirsty um, mentality, you know, because... It seemed every year there was a big war going on in uh, in Europe, so there were lots of American officers. I think uh, even before uh, the American Civil War, more than one hundred uh, coming to to Germany, uh, coming to Europe and um, studying the armies and studying the military system. And what what they studied first was you know saddles. It was you know uh, belts. It was shoes. It was hats. For for one time, for a brief time, the Americans even had introduced the Pickelhaube, the the German you know helmet with the spike. Right. So, um, and I was amazed that they did not focus on stuff like you know of training, command, and all those things. And I was at the, at first completely missed. And only when Germany had won three wars, when uh, uh, Moltke the Elder had won three wars. Then the Americans uh, thought about, you know, maybe we should look at the staff, maybe we should look at the, the educational system and all that stuff. And that, that, is, that was surprising to me that it took so long for the Americans, even though so many were there and so many looked at uh, from different angles and perspective at uh, the Prussian army, the German army, that it took so long that they, uh, um, you know, assessed the uh, educational system. Well, of course, it's the influence of, of Napoleon and the Second Empire as well on American perceptions of military affairs. And you're right, it would take, you know, successive German victory in the, the 1860s and 1870s to change that mindset. Yeah, exactly. So, but when they looked at the German system, when they looked at the German system, they looked only at the structures. And that was one of the, one of the great mistakes the Americans made. So I think it was Sheridan who said, you know, it would be a great mistake if we just uh, copied the structure and not copy the spirit, the German spirit. And that was indeed the great problem. And that is one of the, you know, kind of the red red line that goes through my book that uh, the Americans did not really understand the German idea of, of you know, making offices and how it was so dif- different. Right. The, 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 the military culture, especially the command culture between uh, the Americans and the Germans was so different that it was really hard to grasp for Americans. Even at the end of the Second World War, there were only very few American generals who had an idea about, you know, Auftrags tactic, about uh, the officer education in, in Germany and all that stuff. That was very, that was very interesting to me. 
Well, at the same time, when you're 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 setting the stage in describing the extent of German influence, you also know that the German general staff itself was not as perfect a model as some have described as well. You know, it had its own flaws as well. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So we have a, a, a huge pile of glorifying literature about uh, the German general staff, and it was actually the, the weakest point of the Germans in the 20th century. It was one of the weakest parts of the whole army. So um, I would appreciate if uh, the guys who you know, don't like me criticizing the U.S. Army see that point, too. I'm, I'm criticizing the German army as well. Yeah. They're, not looking, they're not looking too good either in my book. So... Um, the, the whole thing changed when uh, El- Moltke the Elder died. So he was kind of uh, a very special person, like uh, George C. Marshall on the American side. Right. And uh, what is not often enough looked at, that is leadership. That is the, the personal leadership. And in an army that has such a steep hierarchy, single persons can have a great impact on a whole structure. So if you have an amazing uh, leader uh, on the top of the structure, you know, that his capability trickles down. If you have an incapable person uh, on the top of the pyramid, things look really gloomy because a staff in itself, a general staff in itself, is not a helpful organization. Well, it these needs- are hierarchies which are highly intuitive as well, which respond to the impulses of their leaders. Exactly, yeah. So two of the, the greatest um, uh, chief of staff, like George C. Marshall and... Uh, Moltke the other shared a trait, interesting, interestingly to me, and it was common sense. So you don't find that often when, when generals are assessed, you know, that they, they, they have all kinds of perception, perceptual ability, you know, uh, ability to command, but common that, that they are assessed by common sense. That is rare, and I think that, is, that tells a lot. Yeah. That tells a lot. What, what were, were there any particular areas where the American system outclassed the Germans early on? Well, the, German, the, the Americans were uh, much farther ahead than the Germans in strategy. So when, when you look at the discussions that uh, the Germans have about the war, that is all fuzzy. You know, it's not really, it's not really a clear-cut goal on how to wage the war. So all the resources, many resources are wasted. Many resources the Germans would need are wasted. There are sometimes really on-the-spot decisions, you know, partly fueled by Hitler, partly fueled by generals who are um, of his opinion. So there's, there's, it can be no – people say often, you know, it's one of the, the great excuses of the German generals that they were against Hitler and Hitler called all the shots. That's absolutely not correct. There were so many generals who um, agreed with Hitler's uh, military goals. And um, so many of them were wrong and many of them were not high-class high class generals. So the, the the general staff of the of the Germans in the Second World War was really a bad a bad example for it. All the all the decisions that were made, the attack on France, the attack on uh, on uh, the Soviet Union, they were not sound strategic uh, um, a formula. It was not a sound strategic formula. Well, we'll come to that in a moment as well. I mean, when we, we speak directly about the, the Second World War, because there are a couple of points you raise with reference to a culture of disobedience that seems to be forsaken during the interwar years. Uh, That's correct. Um, But before we get to there, you know, talking about the interwar years, there's, of course, this misperception that exists, I think, of the German army um, on many levels in, in, um, 
in American writing and American thought um, as being very, you know, rigid, very hidebound, uh, very obsessed with discipline and order um, that aren't exactly accurate. Exactly. But I want to yeah. ask you, how do these perspectives influence the American view of the Germans during the interwar years? It does not really show up. It is. It, they, they don't really have a perception about that. So when when there's disagreement in, uh, inside the U.S. Army, you know, in torch during torch, you have lots of disagreement because you know the U.S. Army is really trying to do war. They don't really have experience with large scale landing operations and all that stuff. Many of them have never been in combat, so uh, you have lots of frictions and stuff uh, during torch, uh, the landing in North Africa. And it never shows up when, when there's disagreement. Uh, Terry, Terry De La Mesa Allen, the yeah. commander of the 1st Infantry Division, you know, he was disagreeing all the time. And uh, at the end, he was relieved from, from his command for not really good causes. Right. So ne- there, there never shows up the idea, you know, you should stand up for your views and uh, he, he might be right or he might not be right, but... Uh, at the end, it is always a disadvantage when you disagree in, in the U.S. Army. So you don't really – they are not really fostering mavericks. And for war, you really need mavericks because if, if you don't have them, that, uh, then you're waging war uh, like a formula. So all that doctrine stuff that the U.S. Army puts out is not helping during their waging of war. The most important thing for an officer is a flexible mind. And it is not that he follows some formal formula or follows some some doctrine. Mm-hmm. So the Americans weren't driven, or they weren't you know, affected by misperceptions of the Germans. Yeah, I have, I have all these citations when they talk about the German general stuff, and that they don't really know what's going on there. Yeah. What about the Germans? I mean, do they are they driven by misperceptions of their American foes? Oh yeah, yeah, a lot. So one of the great of uh, failures of the German officer corps is arrogance. So they really think nobody's up to their standards. You know, not many were up to their standards, but there's, there were lots of good uh, officers in the U.S. Army. So uh, they, they, the U.S. Army just did not produce a system that made good officers. That's another thing that is often misunderstood about my book. You know, that people think uh, that I mean that uh, the American officers, officer corps, or the American officers as a whole were incapable. That is absolutely not the case. The Americans just had a bad system of making officers. So, but there were lots of outstanding officers, and they were uh, the Germans were totally underestimating them. Um, so, people like you know Patton, uh, they at the end of the war they really scared the Germans. So he was one of the most feared enemies of the Germans. But it took a long time until they realized that uh, you know there are commanders that are as capable as the Germans, and until until then harm was already done. When you have a constant, then you constantly underestimate your enemy. So sooner or later, you have to pay for it. Sure. sure. Well, let's let's talk about that officer selection process. Yeah. Which is so flawed because it's a big it's a big part of the book. Obviously. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start with with the U.S. system, and you do take the West Point system to task. That is correct. Yeah. yeah. Let's describe for our readers what some of the major flaws. Are. Yeah, let me first tell you how I how I arrived at all that stuff. You know, how I arrived at my you know my 
methodology, how I, I approached the book. Mm -hmm. Because first I took stock and I was kind of surprised that mostly they are only structural histories. They uh, tell, you know, uh, how many years you have to be at the, uh, the military academy, uh, what is the number of certain courses that are taught, um, what kind of degree do you have, and, and uh, to what kind of unit uh, will you go when you have finished uh, all these things. How is your access to the uh, to the military academy. So, and, and I was surprised that there was so little research and primary sources on how those officers or how the cadets really uh, felt about the institution that they passed through. Right. Well, you see it only in memoir form, really. Ex exactly. Yeah. And then it's often clouded by, you know, the mellowing of age, you know, when a general is 82 years old, writes memoirs about uh, West Point. He's not really critical. So that was my that was my task to go down and find diaries and letters of general of people who were generals and and once were cadets and were eighteen nineteen twenty years old and what was their feeling about you know when they went to West Point when they went through the command and general school what you know how did they like it so in all these other structural histories they cannot um they cannot do that. They're extremely helpful, of course, for me. You know, I need to know when, when was a, a certain institution, when was it founded, why, why did the, the names change, how many years were officers there. So that was extremely helpful. But I wanted to advance one more step. I wanted to know about the didactics and the, the pedagogy of the, of the uh, institution. So and it was very revealing to me when I read all these um, all these uh, letters and diaries that people, that the, the officers were really not appreciative of the institution. They thought they could do many, many more things, and they were, you know, putting the brakes on them. They they felt when they went to West Point and when they went to the Commander General Staff School as, uh, as if they had to stop and have to slow down all the time because the structure of the school was so tedious. So when you when you uh, read the diaries, what often comes up when they describe the daily life uh, at West Point, it is tedious. It is very tedious. And it's not the same uh, when you look um, at the letters that uh, German Kadetten uh, write uh, about their life at, at the Kadettenschule in Germany. So that was lively. You know, it was action. It was fun. And um, when you have generals like uh, Joe Lawton Collins, who writes in his memoirs, you know, I was one of the very few persons who enjoyed his life at West Point, uh, then you, that really has to make, make you think. Because the people who went initially to West Point, they were extremely enthusiastic. They were totally motivated. And um, so some, somebody wrote, uh, and I quoted that in my book, that really what they did, they, they wasted an enormous amount of Youthful enthusiasm at, at, at these institutions because, you know, they had to do all these tedious little things looking at the uniform in an, in an amount that made no sense anymore. When you get a demerit because you put waste into the waste basket, uh, you really have to think about, you know, if that helps, helps making an officer. Well, that's part of the hazing problems, too. Exactly. That is part of the hazing problem. And that is one of the things that I also found extremely surprising. You know, I had read all, ki all kinds of stuff about West Point, but I never thought it would be really a system that was in place for hundreds of years. So that really nobody uh, made the decision, a general, and, and said, you know, 
hazing did not help me at all. It did not make me a tough guy. It did not make me a tough son of bitch. And then when I was under fire, the hazing did not help me at all. You know, the leadership, the leadership of my superior officer helped me. The, the example of my sergeant major helped me, uh, you know, not running away under fire. But it was not the hazing at West Point. The way we, maybe we should abolish that hazing completely. But it's such an ingrained part of the of the U.S. Uh, Army officer education that it's very, very hard to get rid of. And um, to me, it was completely surprising. In Germany, you had the same problem. You know, you had the same problem before the end of the 19th century, but uh, then Auftragstaktik was developed. Right. And um, an officer needed, you know, a flexibility of mind. He needed to move freely and he needed to have the, the confidence, self-confidence to do that. And if uh, you have a young guy who's 16 years old and you push him down all the time and you're no good, you have no idea what you're doing, you know, you, you're not, not worth going uh, to the army and, and all that stuff, then he will not there, making um, daring decisions in war. So th that is the, one of these, these great uh, differences. And in, in the Kadettenschule in Germany, they tried to really pull up people. They, they tried to, to raise them in, in being something bigger, something greater. And you cannot do that when you are treated, you know, like a servant or like somebody who is kind of worthless. Uh I wonder if in the American case of West Point and hazing, if it's perhaps a reflection of imposing class strictures or class yeah. hierarchies on a people who generally have rejected class up yeah. to that point. Exactly. That is one, that is one explanation I found for, for that uh, ongoing hazing, but it would only be an explanation for the first decades or so, you know, because um, after that there should have been the Americans were at war. They should have learned. There should have been an assessment what helps an officer and what does not help an officer. And if you read um, the pieces on leadership that really great American generals wrote, like, you know, like Ridgeway and like Patton, and there's nowhere to be found that hazing in any way helps you a great leader. It's nowhere to be found. So you could even go back conversely to the American Civil War and look at who the outstanding leaders are in the Union Army and or even in the Confederate Army and ask the same question. You'll find it didn't help them either. Exactly. And that's that's why one of the Union generals already wrote that book and he surmised that West Point generals uh, officers who had West Point education were in no way superior to uh, to officers who had no West Point uh, education. And that is one of the things, you know, that surprised me when I looked at the historiography because people passed through the schools, through the, Amer through the American schools, and because uh, the U.S. Army undoubtedly won the war, that people made the connection that because they passed through the schools and they won the war, they were taught, you know, enormously useful stuff. And that, to me, was just an assumption. And assumptions need, for, for an historian, you need to prove, you need to check on, on the facts, and check on all that stuff. It was just <clears throat> the same when I wrote my first book about the desertion of the army of Frederick the Great. When you read every, everywhere that uh, the Prussian soldiers were beaten every day, you know, every day and every day. And uh, that's, that was just life, and that's why, why the soldiers deserted. So if you, if you believe all that stuff and never check on the facts, then uh, historiography repeats itself all the time. If you want to, if you want to go a step ahead, you change your methodology. So that's why I went to the archives and checked on um, the sources. What what did the the Prussian soldiers think about their daily life? 
proved to be totally different. And it's the same with the U.S. Army. When you look at the sources, what people think about West Point, and especially what people thought when they went through uh, the Commander General Sess School, then it was it did not no, no longer fit that bill. You know that they learned this amazing, uh, uh, important stuff to win the Second World War. Well, was there anything positive <coughs> to come out of West Point? I mean, you know, in terms of the curriculum or, or the experience? Well, most of the guys who went to West Point, they became total fitness buffs. You know, they were extremely fit. The American generals, you know, like Eisenhower and Bradley and Patton, they were extremely fit guys. Yeah. And um, they kept that up all their life. So when they uh, went to war and uh, you know war is really an exhausting business especially when you 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 are in North Africa and stuff and those guys they did not just hang around most of them did not just hang around so Eisenhower was driving to the front lines he was looking around you know and Patton first he was always on the front lines so people with lesser uh, fitness they would never have made it so that is why uh, Marshall washed out so many colonels and so many generals because they just could not keep up so that was one for me one of the positive things that came out of West Point but it's really not much you know if one one guy who was a former uh, West Point officer he wrote in, in his um, thesis about the curriculum changes that uh, it was so helpful that they could bond you know at West Point but, of course, it was helpful that they could bond at West Point. But if you think also about the hazing, then, you know, that might might change that idea that the bonding was so important. And you can also bond at the different places. For for the German officers, for example, it was not really important um, if they went to Kadettenschule together. It was way more important at which regiment they served. So the bonding for German officers took place in the regiment and not uh, during the schools. Well, another thing I would think of, too, with a problem with the schools is if you're instilling a, a sense of class hierarchy or privilege amongst officers, it kind of becomes an obstacle when you create a citizen army and you're serving not only over but with non-West Pointers who exactly. you know, expect you know equal treatment. Exactly. And that is exactly one of the problems that was pointed out when uh, people – wrote about uh, the, the West Point officers or, professional or regular officers in, in the First World War or in the Second World War, that they just had people issues. They were just lacking in social skills, dealing with uh, citizen soldiers. And that happened all the time. And I'm so surprised that uh, so few people who write about the performance of the U.S. Army in the Second World War did not read Stauffer's, you know, huge opus magnum, uh, the American soldier. Yeah where the sociologists really researched uh, the opinions and the behavior of the U.S. soldiers and their connection, their interactions with the officers, mm-hmm. because that, that is totally revealing, and they did not have a good opinion uh, of their officers. Right. So, and it's totally different in the German army. German veterans, you know, who are now 70 years old, 80 years old, they still remember the officers. They remember the names. They remember the special traits of the of, of the of, of the officers because the officers were all around. The officers, you know, showed good leadership. Whereas uh, at the American Army at large, oftentimes they, they did not even know their own battalion commander That's because true. he was because he was not around. 
So and that's all stuff that has to be taken into account. There's some kind of uh, lionizing literature about, um, you know, the performance of the U.S. Army and uh, in the Second World War, and and those things should not be forgotten when you write about the supposedly great performance of the of the officers or the officer corps. Right. The what what a, a reviewer of my book said is um, that there's some sort of triumphalist. Is that the right word? A uh, triumphalist spirit in American literature. Yeah, yeah. The right. Greatest exactly. generation in geography. Yeah, exactly. So, and that is indeed the case because um, one reason is because the American officers were the winners of the Second World War. They were supposedly really good, and they were supposedly, uh, you know, great guys. But um, if you if you look deeper, that is not that is not the case. Which is very true. And also, if you look at outstanding junior or mid-grade field officers, many of them were actually products of ROT systems as much exactly. as they were of, of West Point. Exactly. Let, let's move on to the issues. You talk. You refer, of course, to the Commander General Staff College. Let's talk about the issues with this postgraduate stage yeah. of officer education in the 1930s. Now, you know to the CGSC, the Commander General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, was much more didactic and accordingly flawed than the German Kriegsakademies. Mm-hmm. How so? The first problem was with um, entering all these um, institutions. So for the Americans, the American officers were often puzzled on how to get into the Command and General Staff School. It was already recognized at that time that it was a, a ticket-punching post. You know, you had to go there to become a general, become promoted. So people wanted to go there, but it was not transparent how to go there. So where, where's uh, how to go to the German Kriegsakademy? You could find that in every uh, civilian and in every military library. So uh, you know how to access them, you know how to go there, what what examinations you needed to know, what you need to know in the examinations, what they would ask you basically, all that stuff. And uh, in the United States, there was still a problem. Even George C. Marshall, you know, he, who know who who knew the American Army up and down, in and out. Uh, he confessed in one of his letters, you know, it, it becomes more and more problematic to go to the Command General Staff School. So that was the first thing, you, the, the access to the institution. In Germany, that was all, you know, spelled out to everybody, how to go to the Kriegsakademie. You just had to work hard. You had to pass the Wehrkreisprüfung, um, the, the defense district examination, and the basics that you needed to know, uh, that were also common knowledge among uh, the officer corps. Because those who passed through the Kriegs Academy, so they taught their uh, fellow officers on how to, you know, pass the, 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 the examinations. So when you finally went to, uh, when an officer made it in the United States to the Command General Staff School, they did not know what awaited them. If they had no good buddy like uh, Patton, who always wrote to his younger, uh, you know, uh, fellow officers on, on how to pass uh, through, through, uh, through Leavenworth, or, or Ike, he gave his friends advice on how to pass through Leavenworth. There was no, you know, nothing was written down from the U.S. Army on how to go there, uh, what to know when you when you went there. So they, they were many of them were totally surprised on uh, what was expected of them. So many had to newly learn how to learn, which of course was a great advantage, because many. American officers had not touched the book in years, you know. Mm-hmm. 
only those who I already named were exceptions, those who taught themselves all the time, those who were uh, voracious readers, they were up to, to the whole thing. And then there's always the, the same names that show up, and that already shows you how few there were in the U.S. Army who were up to uh, outstanding standards, you know, like Patton, like Ridgeway, like uh, Collins, like uh, Terry Allen, and uh, like Eisenhower. So they were reading all the time. So still, the whole system of the uh, of the command general cesspool came to a surprise to the American officers because they were all officers of many, many years of service. So, you know, they were not dumbasses. There were really many of them knew their stuff in and out. And when they were suddenly examined on drill regulations, this is the stuff the first lieutenant has to know. They become very, you know, annoyed. They become disappointed in all these things. Something like that would never happen uh, at the Kriegsakademie, Academy, where you only do, you know, high-level war games and stuff like that. So there is a totally uh, discrepancy in the level of education and stuff that is asked of an officer. So at the Kriegsakademie, Academy, you first, if you wanted to go there, you had to first pass the defense district examination, and every officer had to go there because the German army wanted to have a great selection. They wanted to get all the good officers they were able to get. Right. So everybody had to attend uh, the, the defense district examination, everybody who was deemed fit by his um, regimental commander. So he, he would quiz you first. You know, They would not send an officer to the examination if he was not fit to go there because it would be a disgrace to the regiment if you had the bad grade, if you got the bad grade. So and uh, in general, it took one and a half years to uh, make yourself ready for uh, the defense district examination. And it took so long even with the help uh, of your fellow officers who already passed through. So the whole examination took, took five years to seven, uh, five days to seven days. Mm. So uh, I, I named that all in my book, you know, all the, the tactical questions that they had. They were not all, uh, only asked about, uh, you know, basic knowledge and analysis. They were also asked about their opinion. And that already shows another different approach, another different culture in the German army that they very much valued uh, the opinion of their junior, the most junior officers. And it was totally different in the U.S. Army where, uh, you know, they normally majors and colonels or even generals thought that uh, a lieutenant or a captain is good for nothing. No, it's a no-nothing. And that's how they usually were treated in, in, in the U.S. Army unless there were lots of casualties and you needed just, you know, you absolutely had to fill the slots. Well, it's also the primacy of the so-called school solution, too. I mean, you know, validating exactly. the instructor's brilliance by parroting their own responses. Exactly. And that is one of the surprising things for me that is still defended today. It is still defended in historiography and in the, in the, in the uh, officer court today. You know, that the, the school solution is a great idea. It is an awful idea. And it really harnesses the mind of an officer. You have experienced officers. And many of them are so motivated to do, you know, war games. That is one of the great, at, at least for German officers, it's one of the most, the best thing to do in their pastime, except for going to war, you know, uh, doing a war game. Mm-hmm. So they were extremely motivated. And if you, if you, uh, you know, harness that motivation or even block that motivation by telling them after the whole war game is, is done, you know, your idea is totally rubbish. I am the instructor. My idea is the only thing how you can approach the whole, you know, uh, operation. And then they are disappointed. They are dissatisfied. 
And the same happened to, uh, and, and that happened in, in the United States at the Command General Sess School. Officers, officers were all the time dissatisfied about the, uh, the performance of the instructors, about what they were taught and how they were taught. So you have to step, you have to take a step away, a step above the structural uh, historiography, and you cannot only count uh, the the number of uh, lessons they they got in intelligence, uh, they the number of lessons they got in military history. You have to check on how they were taught. How they're applying if, that information as well. Exactly. Everybody of us knows uh, at the university or at school uh, of uh, a teacher who was absolutely brilliant and who could could make the the most boring topic interesting, and others who could ruin the most interesting topic. So it is very interesting, uh, very important on how people were taught. I, I, I thought that's so interesting in that uh, interview you did with um, Mahaney about the, the book. The, yes. Yeah, Matheny, yeah. The, the book uh, Operational, uh, American Operational Art. And, and he was so amazed all the time about the, the level of intelligence or, or the, the or what did he say? The, how much was devoted to intelligence? Right. So and it is correct that the the number of the number of lessons in intelligence was pretty high, but the the, the teaching in intelligence, what the, the people really took with them, that was really an extremely low level, and it was already at that time criticized by the great experts uh, in intelligence uh, in the U.S. Army, and during the war, and uh, people were uh, great great generals were criticizing that. All the time, they said, you know, our intelligence training was really bad, and we got it at the command general's desk school. Walter Beadle Smith, for example, you know, he was cursing the intelligence training all the time, because when the when the U.S. Army encountered the Germans, they didn't know much, right? And they did not properly uh, analyze and utilize the information they already had. Well, part of that too was a learning curve, I'm, I'm certain as well. But you're right that it's it's remarkable they didn't know much because there was an exchange program in place between the two institutions as well. Yeah, that is one, one major point that uh, American officers were exchanged to, to the Germans and German officers were exchanged to the Americans, even though the German officers were not really keen to go to the United States because they thought there's not much to learn. Those who were there, they uh, confirmed things, right. except for Adolf von Schell, who was at, uh, at the infantry school. Yes, well, I was going to bring up both George Marshall and, and von Schell as well, who are yeah. really in this this chapter on the American General Staff School. I mean, these mm -hmm. are the two bright lights in the system, and it's, it's interesting as well, the relationship that they had with each other and balanced against that, against the respect that the two men share for their opposing institutions. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's very clear in Marshall's tenure as chief of staff, you know, he had a good finger on the pulse of what the German army's core ideals were. And That's his right. mission was That's far right. more so than perhaps any other general. Um, and Shell, from what you report, Shell, who to me, I did not know who he was prior to your book. This person who's an important liaison between the American and the German militaries. Exactly. Exactly. So let me, let me comment first on what you said, uh, you said it was a learning curve for, for Americans, you know, mm -hmm. when, they, when they encountered Germans. That is true, true only to a certain degree, because there was no army, uh, no, no possible future opponent, uh, of which the U.S. Army had so much information exactly. than it was about the exactly. Germans. They, they had such a load of information about the, the, the German army because of that 
liaisons, because of the military attaches, because of, of that outstanding uh, connection that, that existed between the German army and the U.S. army, that really if, that had, if they had analyzed that properly, all these failures, they, the failures at the beginning would not have happened. I mean, it's safe to say that the Americans knew more about the German army in 1939 than they knew about the British army. Absolutely. I mean, what do you do to those liaisons? Yeah, that is absolutely safe to say. And I, I went through all the military attaché reports at the National Archives, and I can tell you they were amazingly accurate, amazingly accurate. So, and if they just, you know, had dissem analyzed it properly, disseminated that properly, there would not have been so many surprises. And that points out how crappy the intelligence training of, uh, really was. Well, you know? I mean, part of it, too, is who's responsible, ultimately, in the institution for disseminating that. And again, yeah. it falls to the, the G2, the intelligence branch, right? which, if it's flawed from the start, they won't know how to, how to proceed with their, their work and speculation, perhaps. Um, yeah. Returning to Marshall, um, describe his role in the, in the postgraduate system. Yeah. So you can see as a whole that the U.S. Army were not really doing, doing good, you know, in war preparation and in teaching and all that stuff, but there were people who made up for it. And the George, George C. Marshall was one of them. Not only did he know the, the whole army, you know, in and out, you know, the whole, he knew the whole system, uh, he knew so many people, and he knew what he wanted. He knew what kind of leaders and what kind of, uh, what kind of wartime structure, all this stuff he needed. So he had already envisioned a war army, and, and he worked to that goal, towards that goal. And he was not, like so many other uh, high-ranking American officers, he was not too, you know, American culture standard that he would not take advice from the Germans, for example. So he really, he really Germanized the teaching at, uh, at the infantry school to the standards of the Kriegsakademie. So, for example, the Führerausfall, something that is not known in uh, the leader, leader fatality, that is not known during uh, the, the normal teaching at the command general school. So at the Kriegsakademie, they, um, the first day, they would explain to the students, you know, a really hugely uh, complicated war situation. So, and the students had to prepare in their at, uh, assigned positions. So you are G1, you are G2, you are the commander of the first division, you are commander of the second division. So you, you will prepare, and tomorrow we will fight that war game. So the students, they would, you know, prepare the whole night for that single war game. And then they would, in the morning, they would sit there, you know, totally uh, anxious, and you know, now we fight this big war game. I'm prepared to be the uh, commander of the 1st Infantry Division. So, and then the uh, instructor would stand up and say, you are dead, you are dead, you are dead. So, and now the position is reversed. You are not, no longer G3, you are commander of the 1st Division, all that stuff. So, they, they were completely shuffled. The guys were completely shuffled. So, all that stuff that they had prepared was... Uh, of course, connected to the new job, but the more thorough they had prepared, the better they would fare, you know, but it was still a total surprise. You you were, had already the whole list of orders you had prepared for, for uh, you know, commanding the 1st Infantry Division, and now you were suddenly G4. So, and, and that stuff that... Uh, that Marshall introduced, it was, it was so important for officers to become flexible, to think on their feet. That is one of the most important traits for an officer. You can see that, you know, in all military campaigns uh, throughout history. So it is really that, that uh, officers should be taught flexibility and not doctrine. 
You know, in response uh, to the stereotypical account of the Prussian officer corps, yeah. you note that the institution actually has a long culture of disobedience. That's correct. How does that affect the perceived professionalism of the institution? No, it, it, of course, it is part of the whole teaching. It is part of the whole teaching, and that, that is one thing that changed during uh, the Second World War. When officers were taught all their time, you know, that if they thought professionally a certain order was incorrect and they stood at the front lines and saw it was, you know, it would harm the whole war effort and it would it cost casualties, that they really could disobey that order because absolutely the guys in the staff, you know, they did not know what, what they were doing. So they were really, um, they were really flabbergasted when uh, orders came from the um, Army High Command or the, the Wehrmacht High Command. Um, that they had to, you know, remain in place or shuffle to a certain position, all that stuff, because it went so much against the grain of uh, the teachings in all the, the military schools. Well, is it a case of it going entirely going against the grain, or by that point has the professionalism of the institution been so undermined by no, political it, indoctrination and political generals, too? I mean, the influence yeah, of, of exactly. That, that is the point. Yeah, it is not the political indoctrination of the schools, because it was hardly existent. You know, I really looked into that because at a certain time um, th there was an order that uh, there had to be some uh, notional, uh, national socialist uh, uh, studies at the, at the, at the Kriegsakademie, but I really never found a curriculum or a new, I never found anybody who said, you know, we had the guy of the Gauleiter here and he was telling the officers stuff like that. I never found that. There, w there was just a paper order. Right. But uh, it, it never really affected the curriculum at the Kriegsakademie. Not not as far as I could find out, because there's not not really not much on the Kriegsakademie. But yet, then you have politicized officers. Yeah, exactly, and, and that is that was really the problem for for the German army. And in, in, in my in my um, not the effort, my summary and my conclusion, I already made the point that uh, generals are are differently selected than normal officers. Other officers. It's the same in the United States. It's the same in Germany. Uh, in Germany, they are no longer selected for their performance. You can safely say that uh, the, the most officers who were, uh, you know, promoted until colonel, maybe, or until uh, major general in the German army, they were really promoted because they were really good. Right. And that that made made for the excellence and and, and tactics and fighting in, in, the, in the German army. But when they went higher, generalleutnant, lieutenant general, or full general, they really were more selected for being streamlined. And that affected the whole German army. So it was not really Hitler cut out the whole tactic idea of, of the operations of the Eastern Front. It was uh, Franz Halder, the chief of staff of the army, uh, and he really started to um, stop the guys in their tracks. Especially the, the the fast troop commanders, and yet American students of military history of the Eastern Front will point towards figures like von Manstein exactly. or Holtz or you know others and, and, and say, "Well, these are masters of operational art. Mm. How do they not have a greater influence on the outcome of the war? Or you know what what ties their hands? Initiated students will say, "Well, it's Hitler." You know, it's mm. clearly OK, OKH or OKW. Well, no, yeah. it's the politicized generals who were just as culpable. Exactly. And it was no, not only about politics. It was really about ego. So uh, German generals were very jealous against 
each other. It was not there were there were not bodies like the like the U.S. Uh, generals. That was one of the, the great points Martin Blumenson made. You know, he he wrote really very. It was very critical about uh, the U.S. Army officers. So and and I really absolutely agree because I read all the papers and all that stuff, and I really know that the prof professionalism in the U.S. Army officer corps was not really high. So and, and he he was right to criticize all that stuff. I uh, I quoted him in my um, in introduction, but he also said, you know, those were great guys to go uh, uh, for a beer. They were great great guys to go with for a beer, and the German journals were totally different. So they they were not buddies like like the like the German uh, like the American generals. They were really extremely jealous uh, for the the glory. Uh, for for the, the the great like like Guderian, you know, he was universally hated by uh, the OKW because of his uh, great advances well, in France you, and you all that stuff. You point that out too in the case of you know uh, with Von Schell, that he and Von Schell did not exactly get along well. Exactly, exactly. They basically they had both great ideas, you know. They they should have pulled the the, the same rope, uh, as we say in Germany. But instead, they were so jealous that they each of them was able to you know. Uh, um, pour sand into the whole system because they they each had different ideas about the motorization and instead of you know getting together brainstorming and finding a, a cool way to even make it better every every one cooked his own meal so that was really and, and that is not that is not a singular event in the in the German officer corps so that, is, that that a, is that a flaw or feature then of the independent initiative focus of the Kriegs Academy no 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 no, that is just arrogance. That is the, the arrogance of the American officer corps. You know, you they the were German so good. Officer. Yeah, sorry, the German officer corps. Uh, they they were so they were so good. You know, I'm so good. I, that my ideas are so great about motorization. The other guy has no idea about, it and I don't need to listen. I'm a lieutenant general now. So that that is one of the problems we have here. Absolutely. And you were right about the the generals, the senior generals, who are sometimes because of their political views, uh, you know, obstructed the whole the whole system. Or because they were also jealous because of the younger guys, yeah. because they did not listen, because it was normal that the commander of the fast troops did not give, you know, did not give really, a, was not really interested about what the OKW 1,000 kilometers in the west was saying about his operations. Yeah, and they sh and they should not, they should not have been interested. Absolutely not, because it was the prerogative of a of a fast troop commander to go where he wanted, where he wanted. So uh, you have that friction between the, the older staff officers and the, the younger fast troop commanders, and they were harnessed all the time. Right. Well, some have argued, too, that, that that's a reflection, too, of a generational gap of knowledge in which older officers like the von Kleist and such, who didn't really understand fast warfare the way a Guderian or a Rommel would. And at the same time, the Rommels and the Guderians, who were so insistent that their system was right, refused to countenance any, any restraint. It, it is not only uh, uh, because of the age difference. It is also because of the break in the selection mechanism. And, and that happened um, after the First World War. Usually, uh, those who were elevated to higher rank who had uh, you know, distinguished frontline command. And they had uh, some, you know, smart staff officer who was younger. But the guys who were overall command, those were, were the guys who had, you know, really long-time frontline command. And that absolutely changed uh, when when the Germans' army got cut down through the Versailles Treaty. And suddenly the whole system was, you know, 
reversed. At that time, already many uh, officers, German officers from uh, different classes had come uh, to the officer corps. Normally, there, there were the Offiziersfähige Geschichten, the officers capable classes in Germany where, where you know, officers were from uh, recruited. That is um, the sons of, of, of officers, of course, that is um, uh, lawyers, that is uh, doctors, uh, that is higher officials. And that had already changed. The, the army had changed in a way that uh, officers were promoted because they were good. And that changed after the Versailles Treaty when uh, von Sigt, you know, he made new... Uh, rules on who was selected. You had only 4,000 officers to be selected from a quarter of a million. So, you know, you really, the, the whole thing was changed. Now, there were more from officer-capable classes. There were more from nobility suddenly. The percentage of officers from, from nobility was way higher suddenly and more staff officers. So those who had commanded in the front lines, they were washed out. So, and it is, it is to me that the, the, the different selection system uh, after the First World War, I was really uh, to be blamed for, you know, that kind of stubbornness and that kind of, you know, uh, wanting to help Hitler and, and all these things. When when they had um, a disagreement, Franz Halder, the army chief of staff, and Hitler, and uh, Halder said to Hitler, you know, that is so hard for our, your your new decision will be so hard uh, for for our uh, soldiers. The front line will cause casualties, and you don't know how that is. And then Hitler exploded. Because Hitler had been at the front lines right. and Halder had not. So we have a, a general oberst here. We have a, so a guy who is already one rank above a, a full general who had never commanded troops in battle. So, and, and these guys had never before risen to higher rank. That was, a, that was, a, that happened only after these new uh, selection rules were made by Hans von Sigt after, after the Versailles Treaty. It was one reason why the Germans lost the war. You close the book, or come close to closing it, with the, with the following statement. The U.S. Army of those days did not have good officers because of West Point, but in spite of it. Not, rather than ask you to elaborate on that, you know, that kind of raises the primary question for the entire book, which is if American command control was so problematic compared to that of the German armed forces... How did the American Army manage not only to, to confront its enemy in the ETO, survive, but ultimately succeed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's an important question that needs to be answered. That's for sure. So first, all these um, advantages that I point out for uh, the selection and the education of uh, German officers has only an impact on the tactical level. Well, and that is one of the reasons why German units were, you know pulled together of uh, fragments like, you know, ensigns from a, from a uh, naval school and uh, guys from the Hitler Youth. And you have a, a battalion that just smashed together from all these different people. And it is led by uh, a captain, a Hauptmann, who is 26 years old and still fight. They still fight like the devils. You know, that is why the German, the German army excelled on the tactical level. And they, they were absolutely not capable to advance uh, in a superior manner uh, above that tactical level. Sometimes in operations, uh, when you see in France, you know, when, when uh, the, the commanders of the fast troops just take the reins in their own hand and decide what they want, yeah. uh, then, then it works. But on, on a large-scale level, on a strategic level, it, uh, all this excellent stuff does not help. 
because then you need strategically minded, strategically thinking officers and that the Germans were not ever taught that and the Americans were taught that. And that is one of the differences. What, what I wanted to point out is that uh, the American schools were not, you know, completely incapable. They just did not do well enough. So it is so often point out how amazing it is that they taught uniformity to an officer corps, you know, that the good things and stuff. You are not supposed to teach just uniformity and how to write a, a five-paragraph order. You are supposed to teach absolute excellence to officers because officers, the officers decide about uh, the life and death of ten thousands of soldiers. So you can only you can only afford to teach absolute excellence at these schools. So that is one of the main points why the Germans uh, were not more successful. They were extremely successful on tactical level. Uh, all the after-action reports of the U.S. Army, they, they proved that no, no matter where there were small units, you know, battalion against battalion, division against division, the Germans, they fought extremely well. But when it came to the overall picture, it just did not work out because they did not have that strategic, that strategic training. Well, it's also it's been arguments raised as well about the absence of appreciation for logistics or um, for in-depth supply planning and such as well. What well, your thoughts on that were? I give that uh, a, a yes and no because um, if the Germans had had that ample supply that uh, the Americans had, they would have been way better in logistics. Oh, sure. Because yeah, because you just have a limited number of of stuff. It is uh, evident. That you know, you have to make things work out. Uh, you have to improvise and, and and stuff like that. And if you have an enormous amount and piles of uh, of food supplies, of ammunition, and all that stuff, you don't need to be an expert in logistics. So one part of that uh, supposedly uh, logistical excellence of the of the U.S. Army is just due to the fact that they had uh, an, an ample supply of all these things. And when something did not work out, like opening uh, a harbor in uh, the European theater of operations, immediately there was a shortage of, uh, of um, fuel. There was a shortage of uh, grenades for the 105 uh, and stuff like that. So when, when the Americans uh, were not absolutely uh, on their toes regarding logistics, things slackened also. Well, I mean, there's certainly the problem, I would guess, of, you know, the embarrassment of riches and, you know, the profligacy that goes with that. But, <laughs> it's a good embarrassment of riches. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. at the same time, you know, the Americans do manage much better in terms of, you know, managing an industrial wartime economy, which mm. is a strategic dimension of war fighting that is absent from a German perspective, no matter what Albert Speer is able to accomplish. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right, yeah. So how's the experience, and this gets to your afterward, how, how does the experience of American-German command cultures in World War II linger today? What's the legacy of your work? Yeah, I was, I was surprised to find, uh, you know, so many traits that were not taught properly uh, in the schools in 1901 to 1940, still present in the U.S. Army of the day. And one of these traits, which is really... Um, hampering the U.S. Army effort is that there is still no mechanism in place that seeks out and fosters mavericks. You know, the, the U.S. Army is still an army that, that looks for and um, awards conformity. So people are not awarded, are not um, promoted, and are not especially promoted because they have unusual, offer unusual solutions. They offer great leadership. There are still officers passed over in the U.S. Army uh, who have an excellent combat record, but, you know, 
they speak out too frankly. Uh, they don't know the right people. Stuff like that. They write the wrong books that is, you know, not fitting the mainstream. That was one of the things that I really thought that they should learn, they should have learned that you learn it already in corporate business that when a, a company goes down and, you know, there's problems with the whole structure with the sales and so the first thing you do is you hire mavericks guys who think out of the box and the u.s army still has not uh, has not managed to to think about it it is still a career break in the u.s army when you disagree openly with the superior and that is something it was always until the second world war it was always encouraged in germany and it was always fostered so that when there was a, a huge war game after a huge war game the maneuver critique. Uh, the first guy who was asked was the youngest lieutenant, you know, to, to give his critique. So he would not be, you know, cowed by what the, uh, what, what the general said. So it was always encouraged to speak out, to have a, have a different opinion. And that's something that badly needs to be, that, that spirit needs to be fostered in U.S. Army uh, education. That was one of the reasons. And, and the other thing is that Auftrag's tactic, uh, one of the most successful command philosophies is not um, has not found a home in one of the most democratic armies in the world. Mm. It was also very, very um, surprising to me. You know, you should think that with the, the fast-moving U.S. Army and the small units they fight today, you need more and more officers who, who should be allowed to decide on 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 the, for themselves what they do, and not aspect brigade, brigade aspect division, division aspect corps, and then you even have sometimes to to aspect you know the land component commander for for if you are allowed to attack or not. I wonder too if you know some might not disagree with that and argue that well there is a sense of Alfred's tactic in the American Army. We just don't see it or we, we don't hear of it because of the nature of the conflict now. Well first it is not taught. So I, I have not found um an officer today who, who said, you know, I, I was taught Alfred's tactic. Yeah. And you don't find it in operations. Right. So one of the glaring examples that I gave was that of the Thunder Run, yeah. uh, where a brigade commander with, I don't know, at that time, 25 years of service uh, under his belt. And that he was not, he was on the spot. He had the decision to make. It was very important. And he, he could not do it because he had to ask back his uh, division commander. And he, in turn, had to to, to ask his um, uh, corps commander. And all those guys were not on the front lines. Well, you are, I mean, it's a great book. Uh, I enjoyed it greatly, and I, I encourage all our listeners to pick up a copy. Great discussion. We could go on for another hour, certainly, I think, and uh, still just scratch the surface. Yeah, I appreciate your patience. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. Listen, you know, we near our close. It's customary that we ask one last question, mm -hmm. which is, what is your next project going to be? Well, I found that there is no monograph about uh, the social and cultural background of the U.S. Army elite of the Second World War. It is just not in existence. There's three about uh, the German of the Corps, and that seems to me a real, real white spot in historiography. And because I have done that enormous amount of research about uh, the U.S. Army of the Corps, that would be something that I would like to start if I ever get the funding. Ah. So that is one of my problems. I am not in permanent. Um, I'm not in permanent. Uh, I don't have permanent job, so I can do a sales pitch for me here right now. So 
that is one of the things that I, I want to do. Want uh, want to do? I would write, like to write the the social and cultural history of the U.S. Army elite, and I would not just you know gather the data and uh, do all the per percentage stuff, but um, the offices of that time uh, and the, the is, uh, historians who wrote uh, later, they already found out that um, sometimes officers did not know why they were, or, or most often they did not know why they were promoted for a certain position. So you need to use the, the, the most modern methods of sociology to find out who knew who at the, in the U.S. Army. And I will use um, the new software of uh, social network anal uh, analysis to, to write that, uh, that book. And I have an enormous amount of research from the archives already uh, because of my thesis. You, you, you have yeah. seen that in the bibliography. Yeah, yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm at a good start. I just need, um, I just, just need a university or, or a foundation who uh, dares hiring a maverick for, uh, for writing that stuff. Writing okay, that book. well, that's, that's our pitch then, calling all mavericks who are listening. <laughs> calling all institutions yeah. that we're listening, who need a maverick? We got one right here. Exactly. Yeah. So, well, I, I, I wish you the best of luck, York. We'll be talking about it and other things going forward. Um, thanks again for joining us today. Bob, thanks for having me. You've been listening to our interview with Jorg Muth, who's been talking about his recent book, Command Culture, Officer Education in the U.S. Army and the German Armed Forces, 1901-1940. This is your host, Bob Wintermute, signing off. Thank you again for listening to new books in military history. <laughs>